بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولا Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream And again you see we have a panel of um, this time uh, Political science students, uh, media students And طلاب العلم simultaneously So uh, I have to my right Hamza Reza a res- former resident of New Jersey. He's known in many countries. He's lived in a lot of different places, he, including South Africa, which leads us to our topic of apartheid today. Uh, Hamza Raza is a talib ilm. He's a student of knowledge in Egypt right now, but he's also, he has an extensive background and a long CV on matters of, uh, related to politics, apartheid, Israel, Palestine. So he'll be really leading today's discussion. To my left... Uh, a beautiful brother from Virginia who is also a talib ilm in Madiki Fiqh and a teacher at Arcview. So he is now teaching Madiki Fiqh uh, in Arcview. He's teaching Aziya. And we, our students are, mashallah, enjoying this class and benefiting a lot. He's, he's doing a PhD at Georgetown University in Madiki Fiqh, in Usul al-Fatwa, in Madiki Fiqh. But he also has a background studying media, studying... Um, the, the representation of media and misrepresentation by media. So he'll bring that element to the table. Uh, let's, uh, again, recap. To recap, this whole past two weeks has been, we haven't done our usual schedule. We've the, Our goal has been to educate the regular person who is, this is their first go around on Palestine. The maybe 20-year-old, 30-year-old viewer of the, of the Safina Society live stream, nothing but facts live stream, that really doesn't know much about Israel-Palestine. And so we we went really back to the basics. We went to uh, the origins of the state of Israel. We went to the origins of the conflict with Palestine, how it ended up in the hands of the British, and how the British basically, I would say, sort of fumbled it because they were too busy with world wars. And then after fumbling it, they sort of kicked it towards Israel, okay, towards the Jews, and really a sloppy handoff. And how the Zionists were a competent people, right? They were people with a vision. They were people who studied how to run a police uh, a department, how to have a military, how to run a country. They did all that. They were hungry. They were unified. But they have a problem. The concept of a Jewish state, all right, doesn't really jive with the modern world that they're living in. And that's what leads us to apartheid. So Hamza, from somebody who doesn't know anything, I, I in this episode I represent the person who doesn't know anything. Somebody asked me asking very basic questions. What do you mean when you say Israeli apartheid? What does it even mean? The term I mean. Yeah. So apartheid is actually a Afrikaans word. Afrikaans was like a language that the Dutch who colonized South Africa kind of developed. It's very close to modern Dutch, um, but apartheid literally just means apartness. Um, And it was a legal doctrine that was made in Southern Africa to allow the white minority to kind of dominate the kind of black majority. Um, And I I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on the role of Muslims in the South African anti-apartheid struggle. Um, And the role of Muslims in the struggle is very interesting because Muslims made up 1% of the population. But when democracy happened in South Africa in in 1993, um, the um, Muslims made up 16% of the first parliament. 
So they're 1% of the population, but 16% of the first parliament. So Muslims were very, very much involved in the struggle. People like Ibrahim Rasul, people like the, the late Sheikh Siraj Hendricks, who studied under Muhammad ibn Alawi al-Maliki, um, a lot of these sorts of people. Um, so when we say Israel is an apartheid state today, we're basically saying one of two things. One is we're saying that Israel is like apartheid South Africa. And the second thing that we're saying is that Israel fits a legal definition. So after apartheid ended in South Africa in 1998, the Rome statute was kind of passed, which defined apartheid as a crime against humanity. And they say, that, and what's interesting about the Rome statute is it doesn't include a single reference to South Africa. It has one reference to Southern Africa, but it says apartheid is a legal definition. It's not about being like South Africa, but it's about fitting these kind of guidelines. Um, and Human Rights Watch released a report called Beyond the Threshold, where they said many years ago, uh, I think around 2020, that Israel has met this threshold. And the three kind of main kind of guidelines for being an apartheid state is first that they have intent to maintain racial domination of one racial group over another, which for even those who don't know anything about what Israel is doing, they don't know the specifics of the occupation, all that, it's not very complicated to say that Israel intends to have one racial group dominate and the other racial group not to dominate. Um, if we look at like the West Bank, um, Israeli settlers live there as full citizens. They are encouraged by the state to live in this place, uh, which is a violation of international law. Palestinians live there without statehood. Um, and they are actively kind of, they have every incentive to leave. So there's an incentive for uh, Jews to live in a specific place and for indigenous Palestinians to not live in that place. So that first guideline is kind of very easily met. The other one is systematic oppression of one uh, racial group over the other, which is also very clear. If we look at what's happening in Gaza today, we see how even um, Israelis are treated in the West Bank and Israel proper, like that's very clear. And then the third is one or more inhumane acts carried out on a widespread or like systemic scale. So by a legal definition, Israel fits the standards of apartheid very easily. And this has been stated by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty oh. International, um, by the Israeli human rights group, Bet Salem. Um, so that's apartheid as a legal definition. Um, Could you tell me, I'm curious, any other states fit the bill? Um, so this like, is interesting. Yeah. There have been accusations. I remember one time Cornell West was asked about uh, this because they said, oh, you know, this Palestinian intellectual did a PhD at a Israeli university. So therefore, Israel is not an apartheid state. And Cornell West said, well, W.E.B. Du Bois, he did a PhD at Harvard in apartheid America. So you could mm -hmm. say that a lot of other states had systems of apartheid. Yeah. A lot of South Africans have also leveled the accusation against India. Because they say because of the Hindu nationalism and all this sort of stuff, India also has a system of apartheid um, against Muslims. Well, I, yeah. a, and I would uh, say that India doesn't have to try to fit the first bill of making sure that one uh, group dominates over the other because their numbers are already way imbalanced in, in Hindus to Muslims already. So, but the other two, I guess you could. Is it is there a systematic? Uh, or systemic oppression of Muslims? Is it in the law or is it some unwritten rule? That's where it becomes difficult. In terms yeah. of like on a kind of NGOs and legal organizations and stuff, the charge has been leveled against Israel, but I don't think that there's any other state that with the same firmness has been accused of being an apartheid state. And even if you look at the way South Africans view Israel, 
South Africans have kind of the special kind of solidarity with like the Palestinians. Like uh -huh. Desmond Tutu went to Israel. He said, I go there, I see the checkpoints, I see these systems, and it's a mirror image of what I envisioned under apartheid. Um, yeah, and it's actually interesting. Before the 90s, apartheid was not a bad word. And yeah. the prime minister of South Africa, in of apartheid South Africa in the 1950s, he wrote actually a book, uh, or there's a book called uh, The Secret Alliance, um, and it talks about the Israeli and kind of South African kind of alliance. And the prime minister of South Africa actually once said that Israel, like South Africa, is an apartheid state. But he didn't mean it in the way we meant it today. For them, apartheid was a thing of pride. Similarly, the way people talk about Zionism today, right? Like Zionism is not, Zionism is kind of becoming a bad word, but an Israeli will say we're proudly Zionist. Yeah. Um, so back then, that was how they used the word apartheid. Mm -hmm. All right, let's turn to Mohammed. Yeah, what do you so have to I add think to this? Yeah, I think on that last point about the, you know, specifically targeted against Muslims, um, I think one of the things, one of the things that we should keep in mind is sometimes what, uh, what oppressors do is that they find another term to refer to a group of people. And that term encompasses that group of people, but it's, uh, but it allows them basically to, um, uh, to speak about it in a way that may be more pal palatable to, to the rest of us. So instead of referring to a particular religious uh, group, you refer to them based on their uh, national identity. Uh, instead of referring to a particular ethnic group, you refer to them based on their national identity. Mm -hmm. And because we have this uh, conflation of the nation and the state, and especially in the modern world, uh, we tend to look at that and think of that as being more fair somehow and perhaps more justified because it's a conflict between two nations and we think of that as being a common uh, feature of, uh, of our experience in, in the modern period as opposed to being a conflict between an oppressor and between a particular ethnic group that is being wiped out or a particular religious group that's being wiped out. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the things that, that's really, really important for us to kind of keep in the back of our minds. So sometimes the way that you hear uh you hear and this happens in the media very very often um and it's really unfortunate is that the message that you're getting is a message that's, dis that's disseminated by those parties that are interested parties so in the case of what we're hearing from uh from palestine right now uh you're getting information that's disseminated by the idf you're getting information that's disseminated by specific groups that have an interested uh stake in what's happening right now and so you have to ask the question, are those interested parties, are they supporting a more powerful, more dominant, uh, you know, power, or are they supporting those people that are weaker and those people who are um, who are more uh, susceptible uh, to being taken advantage of? And that's very, very easy uh, to do. So it's quite easy to, to look at this conflict. And a lot of people do look at this conflict as being a, a religious conflict. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, Palestinian Christians. And in fact, if you look at in like a recent history, the two most dominant figures uh, in speaking out against what happens in, uh, in in Palestine, specifically from academia, happen to be a Jew and a Christian. Uh, Noam Chomsky, who is Jewish, and uh, and Edward Said, who is Christian, mm. uh, which tells you that this conflict isn't a religious conflict. It's a conflict that goes deeper than that. Yeah, uh, if the Palestinians were whatever, ex, any non-Jewish entity, it would be the same thing would be happening to them. Exactly. Uh, now, I'm curious about something. Historically, has there ever been a country who ran an apartheid state? They were the minority, ruled over the majority, and then eventually tipped over and became the majority and um, basically went on to become a normal country or a quote-unquote normal country. Has that ever happened in history? Can we think of 
Yes. So th that's basically what settler kind of colonization is, where it's like a foreign group comes, they kind of oppress the kind of indigenous population, and the goal is eventually to get rid of them, which yeah. is what Israel is trying to do in Gaza right now. We have Israeli officials who have said that we want another Nakba. We want to kill their children. We want to kill their women. We want to kill their citizens. Um, we want them in the Sinai, all of this sort of stuff. So, I mean, we're, we're living in a country that did that. Or how, about how, how about Australia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the United mm -hmm. States, Australia, um, parts of South America. There are yeah. countries in South America where, like, I think, like, Costa Rica, where it's, like, the majority of the population is kind of just white people. Um, so, yeah, there have been many examples of that. Pro and probably we could point to Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Argentina. Yep. So, so this has happened quite a number of times before, right? But, mm -hmm. but when was the latest that it has? It ever happened in you know, the past 150 years or so, or 100 years, we could say. In the world of documentation, in the world of, you know, uh, media and, and, and faster transmission of knowledge, is this happening? Uh, is there any precedent? Because Israel will be going up against something uh, that is going to be watched now. Whereas the Aboriginals in Australia, they were getting away with stuff. Nobody knows the news in Australia 200, 300 years ago, right? Same in America, the 1700s, 1800s, right? Nobody knows the news. The news didn't spread fast enough. Uh, so that's the uh, that's what's unprecedented, where you're watching think, it live in real time. Yeah. I think the large part of uh, large part of the reason why both, I think Hamza and I are, um, are, are thinking through like modern, uh, modern examples is primarily because uh, the Europeans had a head start on everybody. So uh, the fact that they were able to get in in the in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and and be able to tip the scales in their favor in the United States, in uh, in uh, in Australia, in Argentina, and you know large parts of Latin America, um, even in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, too. I think mm -hmm. there's been a history of that in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, the the fact that they were able to do that and kind of sanitize that history uh, speaks a lot to the dangers of the current, uh, you know, attempt by uh, the Zionist power, the Zionist kind of power base in, in Israel. Uh, because one of the main things that you want to do is that you want to rewrite. This is something that Elon Pape talks about in his book on uh, on uh, on Palestine, modern Palestine. Uh, he mentions that one of the things that uh, uh, one of the attempts in this modernization process is basically to rewrite the history, mm -hmm. um, to refashion that history. And if you look, I mean, somebody can take a look at American histories. We get it in the general textbooks that you get in middle school and, and in high school in your U.S. history classes, the AP U.S. history, whatever it may be, IB, whatever. And you can compare that with uh, with these revisionist uh, people's history uh, books, such as Howard Zinn's book. And you could see whether it's facts. It's They're both facts, but the way that you paint a particular History and national identity has a has a lot to say about how you perceive yourself and yeah. how you perceive the other, uh, and how you kind of indigenize yourself is uh, one of the terms that uh, that he's uh, he's used. And I believe maybe Fanon may maybe use the same thing as well to indigenize the uh, the settler. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know we're experiencing that right now. So even if we even if you know it's uh, it may be difficult to point to you know this example here that example there it's uh, primarily because we have several examples in the modern period that stretches from the post enlightenment uh, period the age of uh, discovery uh, up until now uh, that you know we're we're experiencing right now it's good to kind of look at what we're seeing right now um you talked about 
uh, painting a new picture. One of these pictures in the defenses of Israel's apartheid in Palestine or that idea that they're not settler or colonialist is that the land was empty. Right. And this is one of the hilarious lies. And even yesterday on yesterday's stream, there was a comment someone put over night that I saw. He went through a long list of what was happening in Palestine from way back time of Moses all the way down. But funny thing, he's like, uh, he had to stop at about 70 AD. I'm like, hey, you're missing about, you know, uh, 1900 years. There's a gap there of 1900 years. Right. Because obviously they're going to have to put Muslims in there. Right. So you, you, you talked about how part of your study is media misrepresentations. Apartheid states have to, they must uh, constantly repeat uh, their, the, this, this misrepresentation or this new vision Uh, in the America, in the Americas, they had to repeat the, what was it? Um, Provident, what was it? What was the American slogan that justified them taking the land from the uh, from the oh, Native uh, Manifest Destiny? Manifest Destiny, it. right? Yeah, yeah. These people had themes, they had narratives, right? Like yeah. if you're in a normal situation, you don't need to have a narrative, right? You, yeah. you need you need to come up with a narrative usually to pull the wool over someone's head, uh, over someone's yeah. eyes, right? So what are some of the uh, the these fit false narratives or uh, you know, media misrepresentations, stories spun that you want, you know, people to be aware of now. So, uh, Hamza, do you want me to go first or you want to go? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, we have to look at, um, we have to look at media representation in two ways. So one of them, we have to look at the, the targeted audience of the, of the media, right? Mm. So, you either have the targeted audience be the the population, the internal population of the state, or you have it be external uh, external parties, right? And so uh, we have in the United States, for example, a specific type of propaganda that's disseminated amongst the population through the educational system, uh, the the way that the history books are written, the the types of uh, material that makes its way into the history books, the types of discussions that can be had at a at a public level. The fact that we've had McCarthyism in this country, and you know the the discourse on on uh, uh, anti-Semitism is very much like uh, McCarthyist uh, uh, you know policing. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that you have the Canary Mission and these kinds of institutes, you know, you can find Muslim students or students that are supporting uh, Palestine on websites out there is very very much yep. like a anti-communist witch hunt, right? Uh, so there's kind of internal internal uh, propaganda that uh, that goes on, and there's external propaganda, uh, the the attempt to sway public opinion in other parts of the world to support your cause. And unfortunately, I turned to a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, the other day, and I told him, I said, uh, you know, I I feel bad for a lot of Israelis, right? There's uh, there's just a lot of young people in Israel grow up, uh, and they have a particular view of their history you know, uh, pumped into their minds or brainwashed into thinking basically that this was, uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, a land without people, right. Uh, for people without a land, right. Yep. That, that kind of message is cons- consistently being, uh, imposed upon you to the point where, uh, you actually start to believe it and you don't question it. And that's why some of these, 
like I mentioned Ilan Pape earlier, Ilan Pape talks about this. He's an Israeli academic uh, who was teaching at, uh, I don't know if he's still teaching at Haifa University, um, but he frequently does an, ex uh, an experiment with his students where he asks them to describe, uh, you know, what they see outside of the university, um, uh, outside of the university. They look outside, they see the, the slopes and they try and describe what they're seeing. And the way that they describe this land uh, varies differently between students that are Israeli students and students that would consider themselves to be more Palestinian as opposed to Palestinian Arab students. And so um, that just really goes to show that ideology is disseminated through um, uh, through education, but it's also disseminated through the media apparatus. And the media apparatus is not doesn't serve the uh, the benefits. It doesn't serve the interests of the common person. It doesn't serve the interests of like the average you know uh, citizen. It serves the interests of those people who are able to fund the media. Uh, if you think about like our news programs today, how often do they cut to? Um, uh, to commercials it's yeah. they need that commercial money they need the yeah. advertising money and on top of that the the there's like five six a handful of corporations that own majority of the media that's distributed around the world i mean that just goes to show you why is it that it's concentrated in the hands of just a small uh, uh, few why is it that uh when there's a there's some news that may be damaging to the reputation of the united states government or damaging to the, to the reputation of uh, of a client state such as Israel, right? Uh, when it's damaging to them, it doesn't make it into the headlines or it makes it into the headlines, it makes it into one of the later pages or down below the fold uh, on a day that nobody really reads the newspaper, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. show up on a day when people are reading it, doesn't show up at a time when people are reading it. Uh, all of that is part of the, 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 the propaganda machine. And so um, we're constantly receiving this as, as Americans. Uh, and the fact that we have social media is a two-pronged, we need to look at it from two uh, two perspectives. There's the benefit of it, which is that a lot of this can't be silenced anymore. It's difficult to silence it because there's a democratization of the news. But on the flip side also, with artificial intelligence and and uh, and, and these, there's also a possibility, not just of artificial intelligence, but the possibility of, uh, of manipulation of news as well through bots. And, and so the interests are always going to be there. You just have to do your digging. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's funny that you talk about how people on the inside of a country that's that's pumping this stuff out, um, they can get brainwashed. And in this day and age that we're in, it's it's really easy to come out of that brainwashing. Right. With the, tech, the, the world of technology that we have. And I was thinking the funny thing the other I was driving in here today, um, all the talk about normalization. I thought to myself, you know what? This is actually really good because what's the mantiqi? If you just take like a mantiqi approach, what is what are the lawazim of normalization? Mm. Abnormality, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You would not have to normalize if you are already normal, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You are literally implying that uh, that this this nation something is not right, right? It's just it's it's funny that Israel has sort of not come up with their, its its own framing for it, right? This is actually a frame that Arabs own for once, because this is not a good term for them. Uh, normalization, something that's normal. Uh, whoever come, came up with it has really sort of done a disservice to the to the Zionist cause, right? <laughs> <laughs> also think about the word tzbi'ah itself from an Arab, from Arabic, yeah. right? It's to make something natural. Yeah, you know. So it's yeah. The I mean, premise, it's 
Like yeah. Yeah. that's this is where Muntuk benefits. Like the the study of logic benefits because every word yeah. has to have a definition. It also many words have premises, right? Yeah. Right to 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 round something out. If I tell you here, take a piece of dough and round it out, like make it a ball. Yeah. Well, what's the premise? Yeah. It's not round, right? Yeah. So uh, normalization is something that I don't think any Israeli, non-Israeli can get away from. It's uh, it's in the news. It's everyone's talking about it, and it's again pointing to the fact that uh, this is part of the fabric of the story that you're not normal. Right. And most people, this is one of the things that I brought up is that so many people imagine that Israel is no different than like Ecuador, Greece, like a regular country. It's not a regular country, right? Regular country founded on the map and uh, of 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And there's never a concern that they won't be on the map a hundred years from now or 200 years from now. Right. Whereas, that's not the case either way for Israel. On one hand, you're not on the map. You didn't exist. You have a founding story from that started. I couldn't believe this when I studied this when I was young. Like one dude, Theodor Herzl, was not one, but he was the main guy. Like, like one guy spun up a country? Like how is this a normal way of being? And then secondly, there's still constantly a worry and a concern. Will it exist in 100 years, right? Will it be removed from 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 the map in 100 years, 200 years or whatever, right? And if you if you look into certain spheres, there are uh, Jews making contingency plans already, right? Mm-hmm. For China was, was one funny thing that I heard. We're all going to go to China next. So turning this now to Hamza, um, the, 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 the framing of the apartheid state. They need a lot of propaganda. They need a lot of narrative. They need a lot of story to cover up this imbalance with some kind of acceptable sauce. Expand for us. Yeah. yeah. And kind of the two elements of that sauce are from like a media perspective is kind of silencing dissenting voices. So yeah. we've seen this in the United States. People, people, if you speak out on Palestine, you might get fired. You might get doxxed. You might get put on Canary Mission. Um, you've really seen journalists like Mark Hill a few years back. Mm-hmm. He was kind of silenced. Um, actually, Nelson Mandela himself, when they were in the midst of negotiations between 1990 and 1994, Nelson Mandela was in the United States and he was on Ted Koppel, who's you know a famous journalist. And Ted Koppel basically said to him, he said, you know, we know you guys stand with Palestinians, but there are a lot of people in prominent positions in the United States who say that, you know, apartheid is bad. The South African struggle is bad. But if you guys are going to stick with the Palestinians, why don't we just keep the same? Why don't we like not sanction South Africa? Why don't we kind of not do all this sort of stuff? And Nelson Mandela said that, no, he said, this is something that we as the African National Congress are uncompromising on. Yasser Arafat is a comrade in arms. Our struggle and the struggle of the Palestinians is the same struggle. And he later on said that, you know, our struggle, our freedom is incomplete without that of the Palestinians. Wow. That this is the greatest issue of our times. So one thing, is this idea of crushing dissent, and mm-hmm. they've been trying to do this for decades. And then the other thing is, is this idea of kind of dehumanizing Palestinians. And we've seen this in very explicit ways over the past few weeks where, you know, they've literally called Palestinians animals, all of this sort of stuff. Because if you don't have that sort of framework, then it becomes this idea where if you have to treat Palestinians as kind of rational human beings, as rational actors, then it's like, okay, why did this all of this stuff go on on October 7th? 
Why did these kidnappings occur? Why did all of this happen? If history starts on that day, and you can start from the premise that Palestinians are just these people who, you know, are just, you know, foaming at the mouth, they just hate Israelis for no reason and all this sort of stuff, then the kind of narrative works. But if you go back a few weeks, if you want to talk about the siege on Gaza that's been around since 2006, if you want to talk about the Nakba of 1948, all this sort of stuff, then the narrative kind of falls apart. Um, mm -hmm. And the reality is, is this narrative can only be kept apart for so long with the way that media is and with the fact that, as you mentioned, the premise is always that Israel is abnormal. A European settler colony in the middle of the Levant is by definition abnormal. Yeah. The, the state of Israel is different from Egypt. It's different from Lebanon. It's different from Jordan. It's different from all the states around him in the sense that it's a kind of European transplant. Mm -hmm. um, and even in kind of like with liberal human rights discourse, um, the state of Israel does not abide by this liberal human rights discourse that its kind of allies in the United States, in Western Europe, claim to kind of stand it's by. It's so schizophrenic. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like if a country like Pakistan were doing stuff like this, or if a country in Africa were doing stuff like this, like it would be kind of crazy. Yeah. But it's ironic that the allies of Israel are the people who are kind of the people who want to push this kind of liberal human rights discourse like on the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, um, their their view their view of things of of where things are going is, I believe, the hope that they could continue to mow the lawn in Gaza enough to reduce the population of Arabs to below fifty percent, right, forty forty five percent, then eventually forty thirty five, etc., and then they don't have to worry about that one factor of one ethnicity trying to dominate over the other. Right. Um, we saw in history this happen in the past. The Latin Kingdom during the time of the Crusades. The first crusade was won by the Europeans, which were mainly French people. And they opened up four cities. Jerusalem, um, Ascalon, I think, was one of them. Who, you guys remember the four states? Oh, Jerusalem, Ascalon, four city-states, basically. Yeah that formed the Latin kingdom. I can't remember what the fourth are, uh, the four are, but, huh? You remember? Yeah. So they're forced, but these are purely French, like French cities, right in the middle of the uh, Arab, uh, uh, the Levant. And sometimes, you know, when, you, when you're young and you learn about something for the first time, your fitra actually gives you an answer that has a lot of truth to it. And... When I, for, when I was young learning about Israel and realizing they put themselves right smack in the middle of about 300 million Muslims, right? Uh, just the patterns of success and failure. From watching sports, you see the best teams, the, like the Jordan Bulls, they're untouchable. Well, three se one season after retirement, they don't even make the playoffs, right? What does that tell? Like generations come and go. You, you open the history books the greeks are untouchable well two chapters later they're in the garbage right they can't do anything for themselves the romans are untouchable two chapters later you know luigi's flipping pizzas okay uh wait, what what's gonna happen when this when that pendulum swings from the competent ben-gurion generation right and that pendulum has to swing to sometimes they hear here they call it the long island jew syndrome 
so pampered, so rich, doesn't know an ounce of hardship, and doesn't really have the will to fight, and doesn't even care about Israel anymore. Well, what happens when that actually occurs, okay, in the state of Israel that has, you're talking five, six million people surrounded by 300 million? Do they imagine that Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, Syria, all these countries are going to remain incompetent forever, right? That they're going to remain, there's bumbling Arabs that don't know how to do anything and are slaves to the West forever. That's not going to last. Like literally, it's just a matter of time. You're going to go through the normal stages of history, okay? And the competency is going to change. And then you're really, how are you going to survive that? You know, so that's why this dehumanization and depopulation is going to be so important. But it still doesn't make a difference because you're surrounded, right, by uh, countries whose numbers are growing. And eventually, right, a, a, a clock that doesn't work is right two times a day, right? Eventually, they must produce a competent generation with a crisp vision and a will to exert, you know, their destiny on the world rather than receive it become the subject of history rather than the object of history it's a matter of time what are they going to do in that case technology can only take you so far all right so what are you guys thoughts about that i think the other factor is is the united states basically is kind of like a necessity for kind of israel to like survive mm -hmm. and even within the united states we're seeing public opinion shift so rapidly i think they did a poll that saw, said 80% of Democrats support a ceasefire. And I think like 70 something percent of independents and like 60 something percent of Republicans, two thirds of Americans as a whole, two thirds of Americans support a ceasefire, but only 13 members of Congress out of 435 have called for a ceasefire. Mm. Um, so once we see kind of things catch up with in terms of public opinion um, and the United States kind of support for Israel ends, they're not gonna really have much to stand on. And yeah. even now, if you look at like the statements of these guys, when I read these statements, I'm like, oh, wow. When these guys, you know, are at the Hague, like statements like this are really going to look very bad. Yeah. Um, so I think we should be very optimistic. Um, what, one of my teachers, we were studying uh, Bukhari uh, a couple of days ago, and he said, I've never seen popular support in the Muslim world like what I've seen today in the yeah. entirety of my life. Um, so we should be very kind of hopeful in that regard. Um, and I think another thing is, is even in terms of apartheid South Africa, if you told someone in the 80s that apartheid would be gone in the 90s, they wouldn't believe you. Mm. Um, things shift a lot more rapidly than we think. Um, there have been reports of a lack of morale at the State Department because the kind of internal politics of the State Department is very clear that this is wrong. That's the second uh, time I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're seeing a lot of kind of changes happening. Um, mm -hmm. and those changes are going to manifest sooner than later. Yeah. Well, also, eventually, the United States influence, as we saw the British Empire's influence, it's eventually going to go down. It's not going to last forever. Right. Uh, it's eventually going to go down. And uh, let me turn something to your uh, uh, in terms of media and representation. Um how do you see the Israeli academic scene responding to this? How are they fitting into the rest of the uh, uh, academic world who is clearly in tune with more Ilan Pape's uh, perspective inside of Israel? Is that perspective still shut down or is it something that uh, is growing? Uh, 
that critical think, perspective? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think, uh, the easy answer is I don't know. Um, but if I can maybe take a guess based off of individuals who are kind of, uh, perhaps more popularly known in the West, uh, such as Elon Pape or Yuval Noah uh, Harari, who writes Sapiens, right? And these individuals, um, a lot of them represent, I think, uh, the, the liberal wing in, uh, in Israeli politics. And um, they're worried about the kind of the rise of the far right in the same way that the liberal wing in the United States is also concerned mm -hmm. about the rise of the far right. And so, uh, and generally speaking, have bought into the notion of there being certain um, human rights, universal human rights, and um, and these are obviously human rights uh, violations according to uh, to these conventions, right, international conventions or the Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. um, but I I will say that historically, one of the things that uh, uh, kind of goes under the radar is how the uh, intellectual uh, echelon of society has been uh, co-opted uh, by those corporate interests, right? Uh, and this happens very frequently. If you think about um, in the United States, you think about uh, the tobacco industry. What was the tobacco industry able to do? It was able to co-opt a certain segment of the of the scientific community, specifically those that were pretty prominent following the Manhattan Project, physicists, for example, uh, to get them to uh, to partake in their efforts to shift public opinion away from a lot of the studies that were produced in the 1950s and the 1960s that showed that smoking was harmful and was one of uh, was a curse, you know, contained carcinogens and, and led to uh, lung cancer, right? Uh, and so, you know, there's members of the scientific community that were against that. There's members of the scientific community who've uh, who've spoken out against, uh, you know, uh, climate change or other kinds of like issues. And so, uh, you really have to ask, you know. Uh, what what are the factors that are influencing a particular into uh, you know member of the intelligentsia's uh, either support or lack of support of um, of uh, of this cause? And uh, sometimes you'll find that there are people who are uh, who are principled who have a particular you know ideology that they believe in and they manifest the ideology regardless of what's happening. They just believe that there's certain things that are wrong. Um, mm -hmm. Ilan Pape and Noam Chomsky being examples of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have other individuals who are perhaps a bit more um, opportunistic uh, or who are able to convince themselves that there are national security concerns that we really need to think about or who bought into the narrative that uh, if you don't support Israel, that you are anti-Semitic uh, or that you, you know, what's going to happen is these Arabs are foaming at the mouth. Uh, you know, Fanon talks about the fact that like the natives are oftentimes spoken about in zoological terms. Uh, that they're like rats and that they live in you know sewages and like uh and so they're they're constantly they're irrational beings and if you think about the way that the media is representing the palestinians and specifically their political organizations even democratically elected political organizations they they represent them as being irrational agents and generally speaking these autocratic regimes that are in the in the arab world are represented as being basically bulwarks against an irrational uh, native population that yeah. would just sweep over the entire land like a yeah, Jewish met Jewish, God mm -hmm. God kind of situation. Uh, and so I think that uh, I think what you what you see is generally speaking in in the you have a segment of the population, especially amongst the intellectual class that has shifted to the left historically. Uh, and that's why, you know, those of you that are going through college or whatever, you start realizing that a lot of your professors are very, very uh, kind of closer to like left leaning liberals. 
uh, maybe not progressives, but they're left-leaning liberals. Um, and you do have like a kind of rise also of certain far-right conservatives that are, that are coming up in Europe and in the United States and also, uh, you know, most likely in Israel. So um, I think we should, you know, we should be conscious of the fact that this intellectual class is not, you know, like a, a monolith. And those of them that do go against uh, those interests are oftentimes subject to um, certain purges, like mm -hmm. in Russia or in other places, right? In, in Germany, the same thing as well. Uh, here in the United States, a certain type of purge was McCarthyism, right? That's yeah. a type of purge. Uh, and so uh, they're also worried about their careers. They're worried about their um, their futures, et cetera. So, um, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad that there are professors that are speaking out and PhD students are speaking out. But I can tell you for a fact that just, just as there are Muslims who are in PhD programs, who are studying Arabic and Islamic studies, for example, who are who are secretly Muslim or who downplay their Islamic identity because they are conscious of the fact that they will be perceived as people who have biases when they apply for jobs. Yeah. Uh, the same thing also goes for people who are probably supportive of the Palestinian cause, but are worried about how their reputation, what that will do for the reputation. Uh, and there are calls for certain professors to be fired from their jobs just because they say something like, you know, Israel is an apartheid state mm -hmm. automatically, like you're, uh, you know, you're, you're faced with that backlash. And there is this, uh, since Trump came around, he popularized this concept of just believing something because you want to, irrespective <laughs> of all the facts, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, this go around has sort of, it's highlighted people who still want that. Okay. And it's also, but it's also been balanced out because it's a war in a war. You have pictures. If you're telling me someone got killed, show us the picture, right? In this day and age, we, we got uh, evidence for this. You can't just make up lies, uh, yeah. as in the past that perhaps then you could just believe those lies if you want to. The Western media has been so egregious. The guardian has been much better. Uh, I'm looking here at an article that said 85 year old hostage, Okay, and Gaza says she went through hell. This is actually not what she said. Okay, it's actually not what she said. Uh, she said that she uh, she was in a great amount of fear. Let me actually read to you what she said, and then you see that the Guardian gives you a, yeah. a polar opposite image. Yeah. It's almost like they're making just making up stuff. So Yocheved Litchevich, she says, has described her ordeal of being captured by Hamas at a press conference in a Tel Aviv hospital, okay? She was one of the two women returned by Hamas yesterday and third and fourth of hostages to be freed. Israel said on Monday morning that Hamas was holding 222 people. Uh, Lifshitz spoke in Hebrew with her daughter translating in English, okay? She said that she had been through hell after being uh, captured by Hamas fighters on motorbikes, okay? So that is the one part that she said. And then she says, and at one point, she was forced to walk. However, she was forced when she arrived at the uh, uh, at the tunnels. She was taken uh, treated very differently. She said, "People treated her gently. They looked after our needs. The captives were fed. We got mattresses to sleep on." Okay, and she said there were doctors and paramedics paramedics ready there in the tunnels in Gaza to tend to the wounded. She was critical of Israel's military for not taking the threat of Hamas seriously before that. Okay. So let's take now a look at the New York Times says, quotes that picture, went, line went through hell. That's not all she said, right? But yeah, that's what yeah, they're yeah. going to highlight. Now, what is yeah. the, uh, 
Guardian highlight. The Guardian highlights. The same woman, okay, 85, shown uh, shaking hands with Hamas capture, basically saying goodbye to the capture uh, upon leaving, okay? All right, Lifshitz said that after the initial violence in her Hamas capture had shown her, this is in her words, care and gentleness, a rare description of humanity in a savage conflict. Okay, these are her words. Uh, guards fed the prisoners the same type of food they ate. This is, I think I'm reading here, The Guardian. I'm, I'm, which one is this? This is The Guardian. Okay. They ate the same type of food that uh, the guards ate. A doctor visited every single day. Medication and treatment was provided every single day. Okay. In one case... A hostage was injured, not because they were beaten, but because the motorbike that took them crashed. Yeah, the motorbike is like probably chased by the IDF, so he crashed. Yeah. Uh, she said, they were very concerned with our hygiene and were worried about an outbreak of something. We had toilets, and they cleaned them every day. All right? She's saying this. She's saying the Hamas there had bathrooms, and they cleaned the bathrooms every day to make sure no one got an infection. Lifshitz accused Israel's security forces of ignoring evidence that Hamas was praying attack. Three weeks ago, masses arrived at the fence. The IDF didn't take it seriously. We were left to fend for ourselves. Several Israeli media commentators said Lifshitz's comments were a PR disaster. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And accused Israeli authorities of clumsy, clumsy handling of the press conference, namely that they didn't sit down there and prep her beforehand. And make her say things beforehand, which the U.S. has done many, many times. So this goes into what, <coughs> excuse me, what Muhammad was talking about, that apartheid states have to ha prop up a narrative because, and what Hamza said earlier, humanization uh, is a problem. If you humanize people, this is a big problem for the apartheid. You have to n consistently or repeat a message over and over that dehumanizes them and that uh, justifies people sort of eradicating them off the face of the earth like rats and, 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 and vermin. Okay. Uh, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience right now. Let's open it up here. <clears throat> and then um, what the point I wanted to make was that when you have a war, when you have a physical situation, you can't just believe what you want. Right, because evidence is required, and you can't deny the evidence. You can't deny some of these pictures. And what, one of the things we said earlier is that uh, a couple episodes ago is that in today's world, you have to look for context in the image, and a picture, epistemologically, we have to downgrade it now, like big time. Mm -hmm. The photograph has to be severely downgraded. Whereas in the past, during Vietnam times, there was no manipulation of photographs in the way it is today, right? Uh, so the video is far more important until now. There, there probably will come a time where you can AI and uh, uh, manipulate a video to make it look just like, uh, you know, the same way that we manipulate photos. But for now... The context of these videos is, is the video offers context, and one of the most powerful videos was the Palestinian man who had about six, seven babies in front of him, and he had four or five, you know, people, dead babies, and he's talking, 
right? Like the when babies were killed, the Palestinians were able to give a video that had context, right? And Western media made sure never, not once, to come close, right, to releasing that kind of video and that kind of footage. And the only place we have it is in, um, you know, indiv- individual-based social media. And mainly Twitter, not even that. So Isra is saying videos can be manipulated. Yeah, they can. They, they can be. They will be better in the future. But up at this moment in time, you could still tell. The, a regular v- viewer can still tell the difference between, um, you know, a manipulated one. Muhammad, do you have something? Yeah, sorry, Dr. Shadi. I, I wanted to just say that on that point of the, the manipulation of the, the, the video, let's just say, for example, that yeah. we happen to know that governments, specifically like the Israeli government, because yeah. Israel, um, Israel has some of the most advanced technology in the world, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, and uh, and actually, Israel produces a lot of kind of uh, technology that's used by security and in industry and uh, and intelligence industry. Um, and so they're really advanced in this on this front. So let's say, for example, that Israel actually has this technology in the same way that doctoring images is something that even Stalin was able to do, right? Um, before it became a kind of common thing that we could do through Photoshop, et cetera, decades later. Even if that's the case, the people who can doctor the images are the are the Israeli. It's the Israeli government that can doctor the images, not the average Palestinian who's taking videos on their phones and, and yeah. recording that. And so, even if you were to say that videos can be doctored, the average Palestinian on the street does not have in in Gaza or you know the West Bank or any of the occupied uh, Palestinian territories does not have the the, the capacity does, because they are they are severely limited in terms of their resources. They don't have the capacity to be able to produce that type of technology. Uh, the fact that you just you don't have water and and food means that you don't have electricity. You don't have the type mm-hmm. of energy that you need to be able to produce that. Let alone the technology that's uh, advanced enough to. Do do that so i think point. even yeah. if you yeah even if you were to accept that it's just the palestinians aren't doing it so the material yeah. that is released by the palestinians is more real than the material that's produced yeah. by by the israeli sources yeah that's a good point hamza yeah i mean one thing that's interesting here is palestinians in a sense are relying on a lot more kind of low-tech stuff mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and this is a little bit unrelated but on like kind of drawing the comparison between like Palestinian resistance groups, not just Hamas, but also like Islamic Jihad, the PFLP, the DFLP, um, other groups that are also fighting in Gaza right now. Um, If you compare them to the African National Congress, I spent a lot of time interviewing South Africans who were involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, who were members of the ANC and kind of other groups. And one thing one of them said to me that was really interesting is he said, I hope Palestinians don't resist apartheid like we did. And I said to him, I said, what do you mean by that? And he said a lot of the stuff that we did because of just the heat of being occupied and stuff, we shouldn't have done. And he said one thing that we did is we would do necklacings. And what a necklace is, is if someone is is suspected of spying or like spying on behalf of the regime, you put a tire around them, you tie the tire around them, and you light it on fire. This is something that the African National Congress did. They bombed train stations, they bombed coffee shops, they engaged in kidnappings, they engaged in murders, all of this sort of stuff. All of this stuff that we find atrocious, even if we say that their, you know, their right to resist apartheid was legitimate. Um, and in South Africa, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where they basically kind of took to people to task for their crimes, both mm-hmm. like members of the apartheid regime, but also members of liberation groups that did these things. 
and Desmond Tutu was head of the of the TRC, and he said something really profound. He said that we're taking both groups to task. He said, but don't think that there's an equivalence here. Know that apartheid was the primary infection, and yep. the crimes that came as a result were secondary infections. Yep. And I think this is one issue with media manipulation. They're always talking about the secondary infections, but they never want to talk about the primary issue. They never want to talk about the occupation, the siege on Gaza, the system of apartheid, the Nakba, all of this sort of stuff. They always want to talk about these secondary infections. And then even pro-Palestinian people, when they get on, they're not there to be interviewed. They're there to be interrogated, you know, condemn this kidnapping, condemn this murder, all this sort of stuff. And then when it comes to the Israeli government, you know, murdering civilians and all this sort of stuff, that kind of is like, you know, put under the rug. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's... <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, there is a messiness when it comes to... Well, for two things, two points I want to make. The first point is that a few weeks before October 7th, a couple of friends of mine were talking. I was like, you know what? The Palestinians don't have to do anything anymore. Because Israel is combusting from within, right? They were on the verge of their own, you know, um, civil strife. I don't can't say it was going to go to, you know, picking up arms, but you had the military on one side, the courts on the other side, and Netanyahu uh, on the other uh, uh, with the courts, and we were just watching, sit back and watch Israel uh, go at it with each other, right? And then this suddenly happens. So on one hand, that's sort of makes sense what you're saying with the, 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 what the ANC said, you know, don't do what we did, right? Because that secondary infection is, can be used against you, right? That you're the terrorist here. Uh, but the second, uh, uh, second point that I wanted to make, um, oh, subhanAllah. Uh, I, yeah, go ahead, Mohammed. If on that first point, if you don't yeah. mind, um, you know, uh, when you have when you have an internal conflict in your country, one of the easiest ways to distract from that conflict is to start some kind of external conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to deal with your internal problems, and yep. you are realizing that there's a kind of stratification society along different lines, ideological lines, or whatever. But you need to unify the country. Yep. And one of the one of the easiest ways to do that is to identify an external en enemy, mm -hmm. right? either an internal enemy that's like a minority or something like that, or it's an external enemy. And it just happens to be really, really fascinating that that you know you bring this point up, but it's brought up also in on the opposite side uh, by uh, by Tom Friedman, right? Thomas mm -hmm. Friedman is a New York Times uh, columnist uh, who Noam Chomsky actually said about him that anytime that the United States wants to uh, wants to have its kind of like interest stake in a particular uh, conflict, uh, reported the New York Times uh, sends over Tom Friedman to that area, and so. Yeah. People that are from the Middle East and from like Lebanon and Palestine and who's kind of heard his reporting or, listened, or read his reporting over the, over the decades uh, know exactly, you know, what I'm talking about here. But uh, Thomas Friedman in a podcast recently uh, for the New York Times uh, basically said, and I want to get his words here. I thought it was uh, really, really fascinating. Mm. He, uh, he, he says, he advances the claim that the attack by Hamas on October 7th was a calculated effort to stem the tide of normalization. Look, he says this was a strategic threat. They had to do something that would trigger as violent and as crazy a response as they could from Israel that would create as many Palestinian casualties as they could that would then freeze the Saudis and all the Arab countries, those who have already normalized and those who might be considering it from going ahead. And I think that to the best we can figure out the timing, that was it. And it's working pretty much for Hamas and Iran, right? So instead of like, 
instead of thinking of it as, uh, you know, the, the Israel is having internal conflict and Netanyahu, you know, like for all intents and purposes, there's an intelligence failure, even like American intelligence uh, uh, experts are saying this is an intelligence failure that happened in Israel. Uh, they could have prevented this if they wanted to, right? But they just didn't, they overlooked it. So why is that? Uh, Netanyahu's on the on the out. Uh, he's you know there's uh, there's a rise of kind of um, a faction in the government that doesn't want Netanyahu there, uh, and so it's just very very easy to start a conflict and say you know what I need to. And on top of that, what do you do? You amass more power as an executive mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that you know George Bush did during the Iraq War and uh, and in Afghanistan also the war in Afghanistan. So it's uh, it's fascinating that you can look at it from either perspective, but. You know, it's really key to think about why is it that Thomas Friedman's looking at it from this particular perspective, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas it would make more sense to look at it from the other perspective. If you're looking at kind of what's happening internally in Israel. Yeah, he can't help his. Um, he's a hometowner, right? Yeah, and he even uh, he says at the help. end of his. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, he can't help himself, but except view it in that in that light. Yeah, he even yeah. like he says a flat out. He says he's asked basically to to you know, to consider what he would do if he was in Israel's, um, Israel's, you know, position. And yeah. he says, I'm reluctant to talk about how I would fight. This is a quote. I'm reluctant to talk about how I would fight this war because it's Israel's war. And I look at it from America's interests, right? And mm-hmm. Hamza's already heard this because we talked about it the other day, but it's mm-hmm. fascinating to think about it. You're a journalist. Like, yeah. why should you be looking at it from America's interests? Yeah. You should be looking at it from the interests of like the truth, factual reporting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even like in our media, if, uh, forgive me for uh, for just kind of uh, adding this and going on a tangent, but from from the perspective of the media, there there was a there was kind of like the Fairness and Reporting Act, I believe it's called like the Fair, Fairness um, Act or something to that effect, which basically balanced reporting act, right? Uh, which basically stated that um, that you know public broadcasting, you know broadcasting stations that would receive funding from the federal government is you know collected from taxes. Um, that they would be required to to highlight different perspectives on an issue and to yeah. give equal weight to different perspectives on an issue. The thing is that was severe, like that was manipulated. Initially, it was manipulated by the tobacco industry. Then it's been manipulated by various other industries. But generally speaking, it's been manipulated by both corporations and by government interests to make sure that uh, to muddy the waters. Mm. So sometimes an issue is very, very clear, very, very clear. You don't have two sides on an issue. Mm. It's just there's only one side. Yeah. But how often do you see that, like, that they bring on some kind of random expert to kind of, you know, muddy yeah. the waters? Yeah. You know, this person doesn't really know what they're talking about. And oftentimes, in the case of those issues that are of concern to us as Muslims, for example, what they'll do is they'll bring on, oftentimes, they'll bring on the most, uh, the most, you know, uh, well-speaking, um, you know, uh, puppet for a particular cause, you know, while speaking, knows all the rhetoric, rhetorical tools and devices, has been on multiple, like, you know, interviews, they'll bring that person on to, to debate with Muslim activist number two or Muslim activist, activist number three, who's somebody who's passionate about the issue, but doesn't have media training. Mm-hmm. And then you just look at that and you think this person's destroyed by yeah. somebody who has media training. Yeah. The truth is with the person who is, uh, obviously with this person who's speaking, you know, speaking truth to power. But on the, the other side, what people read and it's just like, wow, this person just basically destroyed them. And we see that also as Muslims, like, you know, what's happening with Pierce Morgan and the various people that he's bringing on. Kudos then to bring on like a lot of people that are speaking on behalf of Palestine. Yeah. But at the same time, also, the talking points are just hilarious. You know, if yeah. you think about yeah. it. Um, yeah, the contrast is what they go for. Yeah. Right. They go for a contrast and they try to uh, and the questions they ask. So, you, yeah. yeah, it's one thing you brought both sides. 
but you just gave a nice fastball down the middle for yeah. for one side, right? And for yeah. the other side, you you're asking like almost attacking them with a question, yeah. right? And and putting you them condemn the, Hamas. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. condemn Hamas, you know? <laughs> Con- condemn, uh, uh, putting them on the defensive right away. Yeah. These are all games they're playing. And um, I want to actually turn you guys to fiqh for a second. Mm-hmm. And we have to say the truth. There is an element of sloppiness when it comes to some moral, uh, to some injustices. In mm-hmm. other words, in the macro sphere, there's a clear injustice, right? Yeah. Let's say in South Africa, you're colonizing, right? You're just stealing. In Israel, we say it's the same thing. <coughs> same thing. The Nakba and all that you guys did, right? Uh, all that they did there, it's theft and murder and all these things. Now, in fiqh, and you're both students of Madiki fiqh, right? Uh, Hamza, are you studying Madiki fiqh or Hanafi fiqh? I've done a little bit of Madiki fiqh, but mostly Hanafi fiqh. You're Hanafi? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Hanafi. Okay. Uh, so... Well, this goes to your point then, because nobody's it, perfect, re- huh? <laughs> nobody's, nobody's perfect. perfect. You know? <laughs> it is perfect, right? It's close, the, the, the Hanafi the school. The Hanafi school, though, we have to admit, is closest to the Sunnah. Yes, right? mashallah. Madiki, of course, being the Sunnah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> All right. So now, now listen to this. Uh, if a, a a mob leader, a mafia don, commits a crime, okay then raises his family upon that crime. In other words, upon that wealth or upon that property. Then dies. You know, a lot of people are going to get upset about this. But we got to say the truth. Then he dies. And the inheritance goes to his little kid. His little kid, this is all he knows. This is his world, right? That's my house. The guy he, he stole the house from is still alive and fuming and trying to get his house back. Now, what is the maqam now? What is the position now between the son of the Mafia Don, who has all he did was claim an inheritance to the home in which he was raised, right? Mm-hmm. In himself, he did no wrong. Yet, the victim whose house was stolen is still alive. Okay? What is the fiqh of this conflict between the two of them? That's the question. Yes, but I don't know if that analogy is perfect. Because in international... I'm just, for, just leave it, forget the, as an analogy, but as it, just as that. Just, just as, as that. that the kid yeah. would not, in the Hanafi school, the kid would not be responsible uh, for what was stolen. Okay, because he has received it lawfully, right? Yeah. Now, mind you, this is where I had said earlier, because I always, you, you, we have to be consistent for, with things. I said earlier, the grievance with Philistine and Gaza uh, and Israel is not the concept of conquering the land. You lost it, right? Ottomans lost it. They lost the war. They lost their country, okay? It fell into the hands of the British. Now the British do what they want with it. They gave it to Israel, okay? And they gave parts of it to Palestine. The grievance begins with with the then unlawful usurping of land in 1948 and number two with uh the treatment of the uh uh, of the palestinian people in west bank and gaza being suspended neither are they palestinians with their state nor are they citizens of of israel 
Would you yeah. agree that that is actually the grievance? Because in the example that I gave, it's just a matter of conquest. Once the conqueror, and he is an oppressor, transmits it down one generation, okay, at that point, according to Hanafi law, you can't make a claim anymore, right? And that's where I think the analogy is a little bit imperfect because yeah. it's not like the Nakba happened in 48, then Israelis kind of stopped stealing land. The Nakba has been ongoing for seven. That's what I'm years. saying. That's where the grievous is because they keep stealing land and they're not giving the citizens a position. Either you're take a state, be, a, be your own country, nor are you citizens, which leads me to ask, in these other situations in South Africa, what was the citizenship of the, the, the actual South African people? What was your citizenship status? So this is interesting. And this is similar to like what Israel does. South mm -hmm. Africa, they kind of create what you would call like a racial ladder. So there were the black, there were the whites who had the most amount of rights. Then there were Indians who were kind of below the whites. And then there were coloreds. And the this is what like they were this is what they were classified as. And these would be people who were mixed between races or Malaysians who were brought over to South Africa, um, like the kind of Cape Malays. And then below that was the indigenous Africans. But when the South African government spoke of black and white, um, everyone who wasn't white was included as black. So Indians, coloreds, and indigenous Africans. Mm -hmm. um, but they would kind of play this game where they would give one, like the Indians were still discriminated against, but they would have more rights than the coloreds. The coloreds would have less rights than the Indians, but more rights than the kind of indigenous Africans. And we see this in Israel today. It's not just Israelis and Palestinians. There's a yeah. whole ladder amongst kind of like Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are at the top, Sephardic Jews below them, Mizrahi Jews below them, African Jews below them. Um, below that are, you could say, Palestinian citizens of Israel who still face immense discrimination and expulsions and all yeah. of that. After that, West Bank Palestinians. In the West Bank, there's area A, B, C. Um, they're ruled by different groups. Then there are Palestinians in Gaza. But if you look at like the whole system, um, Israel is the ruling power in this entire system. Palestinians in the West Bank, they pay taxes to the Israeli government, which the Israeli government then gives to the PA. Yeah. So Palestinians not in the West Bank are not voting for the government that controls them. They have yeah. no say in what controls them. Yeah. So this is a parallel between like apartheid South Africa and Israel, where it's not just like one group and the other group, but they create kind of like this ladder and it kind of helps to kind of create like kind of like this kind of, uh, what would you call it? Creates this kind of cloudiness. They kind of blurry the lines a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something me and Sheikh Muhammad were talking about a couple of days ago, that um, Sheikh Islam Ido, he said in this time, he said, you know, we should donate, we should protest, we should pray, we should fast, we should pray to Hajjad, we should make dhikr. But one thing that he recommended was reading Surah Imran. And, you know, I thought to myself, like, you know, what is it in Surah Imran that will kind of benefit us for like this situation and um i read i think it's verse number seven where it talks about like the quran has muhakimat and the quran has mutashabihat and the people of fitna they love to concentrate on the mutashabihat and if you look at kind of where the israeli kind of government kind of um kind of thrives is in these mutashabihat even if you look at like the pop propaganda that spread it's on these kind of like blurry lines where you can kind of just make up stuff yeah um, so yeah, so it's something that's very important that, that these lines are blurred on purpose, and mm -hmm. there's kind of a, a method and like a kind of mind behind it. Yeah, the peace talks was all to blur everything and delay everything. Muhammad, what do you think of that uh, 
that mesala there, that hypothetical. Yeah, so, I, so uh, to the best of my knowledge, and uh, I need to do a bit more review on my marmalat, but to the best of my knowledge, we make a distinction amongst the man here that uh, whether the person who is inheriting knows or they don't know. Mm. Right. So if they if they do know that that's really important that, point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they do know that that item was stolen or that property was stolen, whether it be land or it be something else, movable property or immovable property, um, then they are basically in the same position as the person who stole it. They're like their parents if they end up taking it. And and, yeah. uh, and so the problem that we have today is that a lot of the the people that weren't born in during the Nakba and they're born after that period. Uh, and live in those, um, or even after 1967, or born after, uh, you know, the, the expansion of the of uh, Israel's borders. After that, uh, these people know what happened. Uh, yeah. It's not like they don't know. And the, the whole world knows. About, the whole world knows. I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact. You yeah. know, that the, and even what's happening right now with the settlers in in the West Bank. Which is interesting. You think about the tactic that's happening. They're they're employing two different tactics. One tactic for the for Gaza, which is kind of like you know separate them off, don't intermix, just kind of like, and then in the West Bank, it's almost like uh, settle them out. You know, like just create so many settlements that it becomes uh, it, it, you take it over. Uh, and that's just kind of my like uh, you know ignorance kind of take on that position. But I think making that distinction is very important. There's a paper that I wrote for a class, which actually was for uh, Professor Brown, uh, and I'm hoping nobody who's listening to this ends up taking up this before I publish it as an article. Uh, but we do have we do have uh, precedents in our tradition, and it's something that's overlooked. You'd have to like look at uh, old. Doc, old kind of text taxation documents such as those written by Abu Yusuf and others, uh, texts on the the uh, history Al Baladuris, for example, Futuhat or the Futuh Al Buldan by Al Baladuri, which is a text that talks about the the kinds of um, uh, the conquests of the Muslims in the early period and the relationships that they had with the people that they were conquering. And one of the things that's really fascinating is that, you know, if you look at our fifth manuals and you look at the history, there's two ways of conquering, uh, according to, uh, to Muslims, what's known as mm. Fath, which while Halat says so beautifully in, uh, in a podcast that he did on Finjan, where he says there's a difference between Fath and conquering, right? Fath is opening, uh, is opening, right? It's an opening. Whereas uh, conquering in terms of the way that we, we conceive of conquering conquest is that you're completely subduing the other. Mm. And and Muslims weren't trying to subdue the others in this mm. conquest. It was opening them up to the message of Islam so that they had less and less reasons, uh, material reasons, to stick to their religions. And if they wanted to stick to their religion, they're sticking to the religion for ideological purposes, not for material purposes. Which is Where important. is this? Can you say again before you continue? Yeah, was it's, this, Finjan. Uh... it's a Finjan podcast, four-hour podcast. It's an Arabic podcast yeah. that you can listen to with, okay. uh, with Wal Hala. And right, actually, good. the person who, who, who sent it to me was Sheikh Zuhair Qazan, or Sheikh, sent it to, sent it to uh, Harun, sent it to myself, sent it to a couple other people. Nice. So mm. it's a beautiful podcast, four hours, necessary listening for anybody who can understand Arabic. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, podcast. But, but notice, we have two ways. We have the conquest by force and we have conquest by, uh, by treaty. Now, a lot of places decided that they're going to enter into treaties. Now, there's this region in Iraq that's called the Sawad, Sawad al-Iraq. It's called the Black Region of Iraq. And the reason why they call it is because it's fertile land. Fertile land is called the Sawad, out of the yeah. Sawad, for example, right? So it's called, it's fertile land. Now, uh, a portion of this land actually entered into a Sulh. The people that owned that land uh, entered into a Sulh agreement. 
Mm-hmm. But it just so happened that when the Abbasids were, if I remember correctly, when the Abbasids were creating their states, they built Baghdad and Medina to Salam. They built it on a portion of that land, right? That they didn't actually, they didn't, it was supposed to mean, it was supposed to be maintained in the hands of those tribes that may have been Jewish, Christians, I don't know, some other like religion. But it was supposed to be maintained in their hands. It wasn't the property of the Muslims to do with as Muslims wanted to do. It wasn't mm-hmm. the property, it wasn't part of the Beitun man, right? Yeah. Uh, which is what Omar did. Omar distributed this land for for the Muslims. He didn't yeah. because he didn't want it to concentrate in the hands of a select group of people, right? Yeah. Capital accumulation. That, you know, Omar mm-hmm. was thinking ahead of his time, right? So this land was uh, they, they built Baghdad on it. Now fast forward to you know uh, a little while later, still amongst the Salaf, and you have somebody like uh, I think it's uh, in Tarikh Baghdad. Uh, he mentions this, right? The author mentions this. You have somebody like uh, um, Ahmed ibn Hanbal mm. and, uh, and Ibn Mubarak who would say that they would not, rahimahullah uh, and radiallahu anhumah, they would say that they wouldn't, they wouldn't pray on that land. Not only that, but they wouldn't be from the ghalla of that land. They wouldn't be from the produce of that land, right? Ajib, because yeah. they recognized it as stolen. And it wasn't stolen from Muslims, it was stolen from other people, right? So it's just amazing to think about how like that, we have precedence in our history. We just go back and we read enough, right? And that's part of like, the project of our, you know, maybe our, our generation, the earlier mm. generation was spending time, you know, kind of building up institutions in our communities. But it's really on us in our generation to make sure that we're reading, reading modern texts, reading, you know, classical texts, reading pre, you know, uh, the texts of the, of, the, of the Salaf. But we're really, really looking to see how is it that like that Muslims engage with their particular time period and the exigencies of that, of that time period. It's not the case that you can just respond to our particular moment today in the way that somebody responded in the medieval period or the classical period. If you look at fifth text, even Sheikh Zerr tells us that, if you look at fifth text and you try and apply what you find in fifth text, or even in the fatwa manuals uh, or, or fatwa compilations to our moment, you're failing, right? Yeah. You have to be able to understand the, the arrangements, the political, uh, social, social, economic arrangements of your time to be able to deal with them. And you can draw inspiration from our history. And that really requires digging into that material and not being shy of it, you know? That that's a beautiful comment which you just said. The difference between a conquest and a fatah, yeah. and the conqueror is trying to benefit from the land and the resources of those people. The fatah is simply trying to bring the truth to those people. We don't. It's not trying to take your money. Not trying to control your bodies. Not trying to steal your land. And just this idea that Muslim recognize that part of their uh, of Baghdad itself was unlawfully built up by Muslims, yeah. right, from yeah. the previous non-Muslim owners, and they refused yeah. to eat from it, prey upon it, etc. Um, that needs to be highlighted more, yeah. right? That really yeah. needs, that, 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 that whole section really needs to be highlighted more, just to show the precedent of justice. And it's, it's massive, it's a massive psychological as, uh, um, a boost to a person who says, I come from a Turath, I come from a history of a just law my people yeah. had a just law right and they pro- moral progressives now they're just trying to figure out what, what is right like you're just trying to figure it out we have a history our, our our forefathers were not uh banging on caves they weren't uh just oppressive strong eats the weak they weren't a people whose morals we can't look up to as is happening now in america people sort of disavowing uh, thomas jefferson and things like that yeah. Okay. Uh, that these are our four. Our, uh, that's why a dean is a far more important identity than anything else, because that's it's a it's moral choice that you're aligning yourself with. 
It's a morality yes. that you're aligning yourself with, yes. right? Whereas if it's a lineage, I, I, I watched an interview one time with a woman, celebrity, and she said uh, uh, she didn't know who her dad was, right? And she said, well, you're now like big and famous, the interviewer. If you put a uh, request out there, you'll find your dad and you just take DNA tests from everyone claiming to be your dad, right? Yeah. And she said, actually, I don't want that because he's most likely some kind of a douchebag, right? Yeah. And the way my mom was living, I don't want to know my dad, she's saying, right? He's, yeah. It's going to bring me down. It's going to bring my self-esteem down, right? Yeah. Or my self-worth down. So uh, she, it's so important to highlight these cases and it's not just... Oh, they were nice-hearted people. No, they had a law from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a just law. Now we know what's right and what's wrong. And they yeah. acted upon it as, as much as they can. So yeah. that, that, it's, that's really important. And uh, that, that, this segment of knowing, that aspect of knowing is really important to differentiate between the, the what, what do they call it in... in, in um, in law today, the uh, the time lapse between when you can call back a crime and, and when you can't. What do they call it again? Huh? Yeah, statute of limitations. Statute right? of limitations, right? Yeah. So uh, I read in Hanafi law books is like 40 years in terms of like property or something like that. But it's really, you can't put a number on it, right? It's the state of being. Do we all know that this was stolen? Or has it like faded away and nobody really knows and, you know, time passed? So whether it's 40 years or whether it's a, a transmitted, sold lawfully or inherited lawfully, the factor of knowledge, of knowing, right, is makes more sense to me than anything else, right? Yeah. You know, and that's where, as Hamza rightfully said, the analogy that I just gave, you know, doesn't fit because it's knowledge that matters, right? Yeah. It's knowledge. That, there could be a lot of family feuds, where the dad steals something, but there's not a lot of knowledge that he stole it. Yeah. Then it's trend, it, it, it's inherited lawfully by the son. He doesn't know. Nobody knows. And he goes on living. Then someone knocks on the door years later with a claim. Hey, your dad robbed me. I don't know if that's true or not. Do you have evidence? No. But I know we all know he robbed. No, we don't know, right? So in yeah. that case, it's very different than when the world knows. That's why education on the history of Israel and Palestine almost becomes a type of fard kifaya upon the ummah because that which cannot be attained without it, a fard is needed, right? Yeah. And if a, if something, if a fard cannot be executed without something, that thing becomes a fard, right? Yeah. And if we allow this issue to just disappear in history in the same way that, you know, we allow other crisis and oppressions have disappeared in history and no one knows exactly who oppressed who whose home was stolen etc then we have allowed an obligation to slip from our hands so it becomes like a fard kifaya for us to do a wird every year we should do uh, a teaching and education teach i don't like the word teaching it's like a socialist uh <laughs> uh a term isn't it only people do teach-ins are like commies and socialists and Marxists, right? <laughs> but we should, we should do a regular education on the history of this, uh, these people, uh, you know, so that it never disappears from consciousness that this entire operation is 
built upon batil okay mabuni ala batil fa huwa batil right and one thing i would kind of add on to that is yeah. this past world cup was a prime example of that where up until even a couple of the kind of uh foreign policy establishment was kind of of this idea that the middle east is boring you know mm-hmm. people are interested in the palestinian issue all of that but the world cup in qatar we saw fans we saw teams putting up like you know raising the palestinian flag even yeah. the moroccan team that i think went to like the semifinals they would have the moroccan flag flag but they would also have the palestinian flag after their country had um kind of normalized relations with israel so there was kind of this message that these governments might be doing normalization and all of this sort of stuff but the hearts of the general populations are are with the palestinian people and i don't know there if you, you know how imam shafi has the uh, has the kind of line where he says hub ahl al-bayt fard indana like yeah. love of the bayt is obligatory amongst us yeah. or upon us it's the same thing for palestine that it's very hard to find a muslim except that they have love for for palestine in their hearts um, yeah uh, and it's pretty pitiful for anyone who fumbles uh the palestinian issue as you know some people you've seen them sort of they fumble the issue and you're wondering how are you screwing up this issue the whole umma in fact i would say the entire global south quote unquote and increasing numbers within england and america their hearts are with the palestinian people right and uh like you said it's like a fard upon us because it's the only way that it's it's an obligation to keep it on our consciousness so that it doesn't fade away into one of the oppressions that happened in the past right like what's an example andalus okay yeah. you got kicked out of andalus and then khalas like a generation passed a new generation is raised in spain that's a no that's a new country now right yeah but had the muslims kept the issue alive right maybe they had to come back but andalus is not like philistine ardul the the land of andalus spain was not recited in the quran that is mubarakun ma hawla right yeah uh, barakna hawla allah says right uh, this land all around it from masjid al-aqsa all around masjid al-aqsa from turi sayna all around it is sacred land to us right and that's mm-hmm. why it inflames the heart of a, of a believer more than any other issue right without decreasing from the sanctity of other peoples and their lands um closing words right. muhammad yeah if you don't mind if i can chime in just uh, sure. i like what sheikh um, hamza just said you know about the fact that it's palestinian people right mm-hmm. and i think one of the things that we should be uh wary of, of doing is to nationalize uh, these kinds of issues yep. nationalism is a is a failed ideology just mm-hmm. it's uh, it's something that as muslims we shouldn't really uh uh participating we shouldn't promote it it's something that uh it's kind of a modern ideology that goes hand in hand with the stuff that you're seeing in terms of apartheid and, and ethnic cleansing it goes hand in hand with that kind of ideology right yeah. and so um one of the one of the key things is to look at the way in which pre-modern peoples associated themselves and organized themselves and to think of those things those kinds of units as being more fundamental than the idea of like a, the nation state as benedict yeah. anderson says about the nation state that it's an imagined community right mm-hmm. uh, and so you have to in order for you to create the nation state something that's created you have to create a history and that yeah. history is fabricated it's a, it's a mythological history and so there's there's the fear uh people should have a fear of creating a mythological history for a group of people 
in order to justify the same justify the same kind of nationalistic behavior that you see in other mm-hmm. parts of the world. And I think you see this. I don't, you know, uh, Egypt, for example, just recently, the whole thing of like going back to this, you know, we're not it's not a Muslim country. It's like we're we're thinking yep. of it as like a Pharaonic country. It's yep. like we're going back to this. It's because it's part of the national identity. It's the national yep. like uh, uh, it's that kind of like nationalist vision. So I I think it's important for us not uh, not to kind of get caught up in into that kind of like rhetoric or to think of it in those terms and think of it primarily as there's a group of people. These people have had like you know they they've lived on that land historically. They've lived on it for a long period of uh, time. In fact, we were saying this the other day. Remember uh, Hamza and uh, and and with uh, Sheikh Harun that um, some of the people that are in Palestine today that are Muslims are actually people that converted from from uh, Judaism, right? So they're actually people that have like, you know, ancestry, shared ancestry with the Israelis that maybe can trace their lineage back to Bani Israel, for example. Uh, so I think that's just something that I, I really want to just uh, caution yeah. is that we don't need to necessarily take upon ourselves the ideologies of the present. These ideologies are helpful in terms of analyzing what's going on, but you don't necessarily need to take on those ideological commitments. Uh, and if you see what Europe has done historically, Europe gave the world the idea of the nation state, handed it out, carved up Africa, carved up the Middle East, carved up Asia and Latin America, carved up all these places, said, we're going to put you into these little, you know, nations or whatever. The boundaries aren't natural borders. They're borders yep. that we just made up. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, like Europe realizes at some point in the in the late 19th century, sorry, late 20th century, you know what? We want to actually be part of like a, a larger unit, an economic zone, you yeah. know? And so we want to get rid of these national boundaries. And, and nationalism is a bad thing. And there's like far-right nationalism that's taking over Europe. And mm-hmm. so we're constantly playing their game. And so if we want to maintain this idea that we're somehow in the past, as Edward Said says, like we're we're living in the European past. Yep. If you want to play that game, then take on the same ideologies, become nationalistic. And eventually, 100 years from now, you'll do the same thing the European zone is doing or the, the, the EU is doing. But instead, it just makes more sense for us to go back to our own kind of indigenous forms of governance that were there. Yeah. And they're not they're not like a nation nation system, nationalistic system. And when we talk about a Muslim political consciousness, yeah. uh, then the deconstruction of nationalism has to be part of it. Because yeah. in, in, in any aqidah, you must deconstruct the fitna of your time. Mm-hmm. You don't deconstruct the fitna of a past time. That doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense, right? You yeah. deconstruct the fitna that is a that is corrupting hearts today. And we have to have a political consciousness. Muslims have to have a political consciousness. Part of that is the deconstruction of nationalism and realizing that nationalism is incoherent within itself. The Egyptian himself can, is, is too cosmopolitan to ever have a national story because you are all just waves of migrants from uh, Cleopatra is Greek. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Alex, uh, uh, Caesar comes in and, and what is he? Who, Italian Roman. All right. they, 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 they come in, they, they marry each other. Right. Yeah. Not Julius Caesar, but who? Uh, it was Mark Caesar. Anthony. Right? Mark Anthony. Yeah. Mark, Mark Anthony, Anthony comes in Caesar, yeah. and a Roman man marries a Greek woman in Egypt. Right. Yeah. What are you celebrating? None of you are Egyptian. Right. <laughs> the native Egyptian is a poor farmer, mesquite in the south. Right who has never taken part in any of this. He's farming the land and he's watching. Oh, the Greeks are here. Okay, the Romans are here. And no one bothers him because they need him for food. Yeah. Uh, even the Pharaoh is not Egyptian. They came from other places. They came from Libya, it's said, right? They were redheads. The Pharaohs were not native to Egypt. They came. Who wouldn't want to go to a place like Egypt that has a Nile, 
that has water at the north, water at the east, right? Water down the middle. And then you have desert below you to protect you, desert on your left. Who can penetrate such a land, right? So mm-hmm. national, the more cosmopolitan you are, the more on the edge of the continents that you are, uh, w- access to water and transport and all the and goods and all these things, the more impossible it is to you actually forge a national history for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to eventually trace yourself out of it. Most Egyptians, I would say, can probably within two, three generations trace themselves out. In other words, uh, if they knew their lineage at all, they'd either be from, uh, from, from the West. There was a massive Moroccan migration. There was a massive um, Caucasus from the Caucasus migration yeah. of, of rulers. There yeah, was least, always yeah. been Hejazis coming to earn a living in Egypt. All right. And the only true Egyptian is going to be probably some uh, uh, of the deep, deep, deep countryside farmers. Right. Same, same, same with many other countries like this. Right. So, like trying to forge a history of New York when in Harlem, history of Harlem. But wait a second, yeah. you're half, half of you are Dominican. You have no basis here. Like, like not, yeah. no, and you have no roots here. Your personal history is back to the Dominican Republic. Yeah. So uh, the national, uh, it, it's too up for chance. A national history is up for chance. The, the true history and identity of that person should go for is the history of the beliefs that you hold. Yeah. Which frees you because that's your choice. You choose those beliefs. Nationalism is a, is it's this luck of the draw, right? Yeah. You know, oh, and when my kids tell us, "Oh, but we're from Egypt," I said, "You're not from Egypt. Your roots are in Egypt, right?" Yeah. But you have never set foot in Cairo. Your dad hardly has set foot in Cairo, right? Like I personally went a couple times. That's it. Yeah. I couldn't know my way around, right? And if I go there, no one is going to re- can think I'm Egyptian. Yeah. They're going to say, oh, your Arabic has a little accent to it. You're not from yeah. here. This is the first thing yeah. they say. You know, you're not from here, right? Yeah. I said, well, I didn't want to. Thank you. I don't want to be from yeah. here. You don't know how yeah. to clean your streets, right? <laughs> I don't want to be from here, right? You would be insulting me. And I don't take my kids there because I don't want them to see these dirty streets. And so that's your origin, right? So trans, trans, where people go is all up for chance. And it's a stupid way to establish an identity. Right, your actual identity has got to be what you choose to believe about life, yeah. about right and wrong, about the origin of life, or the the the, the you know, destiny of man. That type of stuff is far more worth it, and that's why we're you know we grateful that prophets came down to show us this. Without this, we'd be blind, banging around just like all these other people trying to find roots, trying to find stability, trying to find meaning, and so. You know, the negation of nationalism, the deconstruction of nationalism, maybe that's the next episode we do together. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be Hamza, Hamza also has a lot to say about that. I know he has a lot of stuff to say about it. All right. So <laughs> let's do take two on wrap it up final statement on a deconstruction of nationalism, and then we'll take it home. What I would also say is it's very important to kind of teach our like our young people, mm-hmm. like we're good at teaching our kids the stories of the prophets, the Sahaba, all of this sort of stuff. I think one way we fall short is in teaching the stories of like the Odia. Mm-hmm. And if you look at someone like Salahuddin, like everyone knows of who Salahuddin Ayyubi is, all of this. He conquers Palestine, all of this sort of stuff. What people don't know is that his direct sheikh is Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani. So he has that direct tarbiyah coming from Sultan al-Odiyah. And 
it's mentioned that Salahuddin not only teaches him like the sawuf, but he also taught him how to play polo, where you know you're on horses, like playing polo, all this sort of stuff. So they have a personal relationship also. And Salahuddin, it's mentioned about him that when he was recruiting someone for his army, the first question he would ask before he asked them about their military intelligence or their strength or any of that, he would say, Do you pray to Hajj? And if they said he'd say, I don't want someone in my army who doesn't pray to Hajj. SubhanAllah. And um even even in the South African anti-apartheid struggle, one of the early Muslims killed in the anti-apartheid struggle was an imam by the name of Imam Abdullah Harun. And he had studied in Mecca for many years under the father of Muhammad ibn Alawi al-Maliki, who mm -hmm. we all know. SubhanAllah. And he was someone who is killed by the apartheid regime in the 60s, and he's captured as a result of kind of supporting kind of the struggle. And he's captured the night of the Mawlid. And the moment to happen that evening in his masjid. And uh, he says to his wife, he says, don't worry, I'll be back. Um, he's in detention for 120 days. He's killed. And the apartheid regime says the way that he died is he fell down the stairs. The night of, or the, that day, um, Imam Abdullah Harun, they have his janazah. 10,000 people, 10,000 Muslims in Cape Town come for his janazah. No one says a word about how he was killed. Because they say, if we talk about how the apartheid regime killed him, we're going to you know, face consequences, we're going to go to jail, we might die, all this sort of stuff. There's an earthquake in Cape Town, the, the day of his janazah. And it's mentioned that this is the biggest um, earthquake in like modern history in Cape Town. And Jeez. Ibrahim Rasul talks about this. He says, I was seven years old at the time. He says, I don't remember anything about what was said at that janazah. I just remember we were eating food in our house that evening, and my father talked about how this the earthquake during when people were speaking and all of that was part of the adab of Allah that of what the apartheid regime did, but also because we said nothing about it. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. Yeah. So it's very, very important that we teach our kids these stories. And one you... of the things that's mentioned is that the awliya still exist today. Just because Imam Abdullah Harun died in the 1960s does not mean that he wasn't a wali. There are awliya that are out there today um, and they're here and they're people who we should um, you know, teach our kids about and all these sorts of things. The greatest of awliya are still to come, because uh, by the your your wilaya is by your your fad, your fadl your virtue is by your sahaba. So if you are going to be the sahabi of Prophet Isa bin Maryam, who in our aqidah is to return to this earth, then you are going to be from the highest level of awliya right beneath the sahaba, because the sahaba have the sahaba of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They will have the sahaba of the uh, of so. I always think about it that we may be raising a generation. You may be raising a, a son. That son will have a son who will call you grandpa and will be a sahabi of Prophet Isa bin Maryam. Like you may be that close, right? If not, uh, you live long enough to meet him yourself. Maybe your kid lives long enough. Maybe you have a grandkid who's an amazing sahabi of Prophet Isa bin Maryam and can remember you in his presence in dua, and that'll be your shafa'ah. Just that one time that he mem remembers you, mentions your name in the presence of the great messenger of Allah, Isa bin Maryam, khalas, all that, any pain in your grave is gone. SubhanAllah. That was a great story to end with, and I'll, can you quickly write it down so we can publish it as a blog post, that story? Yes. All right. Thank you both so much. Jazakumullah uh, khairan. There's a lot of, you guys... Uh, you know, spawned a lot of talk in the comment section uh, of today's stream. 
Uh, thank you again for all those who are listening uh, or, or were watching. I had uh, Hamza Reza on my right, Muhammad Ali on my left. Hamza Reza, former Jersey guy, then went to many countries, states, Maryland, Tennessee, Egypt, South Africa. Now he's in Egypt. Muhammad Ali is to my right. He is an ArcView teacher, teaches Madiki Fiqh. Go to arcview.org to study with him, to study with him Madiki Fiqh. And he's a Georgetown PhD. So we're, inshallah, this won't be the last time we have both of you. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-lazina amanu aminu salihat. Wa tawasaw bil-haq. Wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Oh, baby.